Hi, this is Stephen Adair, pastor of Grace Christian Fellowship here in Odessa, Texas. And I want to thank you for tuning in today to our podcast. I hope this message encourages you, gives you hope, and reminds you that you are loved. We are in Acts chapter 28. We are in the last week of our Acts series. We've been here for 25 weeks. 25 weeks in one book of the Bible. Uh, that's, that's a big deal for anybody. That's a huge deal for me because um, I'm normally not this patient. Uh, but Acts has been good. I hope that you have enjoyed it. I hope that you have learned a lot uh, from this book about what the kingdom of God looks like, uh, what the spirit of God is actively doing within his people. You know, that's one of the things that, that we saw time after time after time was that, you know, it was by the spirit that the spirit overwhelmed, that the spirit came in. It was by the spirit of God that these incredible things were happening in this early church. And so uh, we've, got, we've watched that kind of over time. And last week, uh, we, we were not here in uh, person. We were online last week. But last week, uh, I preached Acts 27, and it just really kind of brought home this reality of the entire book of Acts that God is in control. Not that God is, is around, not that God is watching, not that God is just kind of, you know, manipulating certain pieces of life, but that God is sovereign over all things. And so while Paul may have experienced a shipwreck, it might have looked like all hope was lost. It might have looked like nothing was going according to plan. The reality is that even though the winds were blowing the boat around, God was still controlling the wind. That's the reality of the sovereignty of God, that in all things, God has it. I want to go back just for a minute to Acts 27. I want to draw a little bit more from verse 22. It was the kind of the, the theme verse of last week, but there was an element that, uh, that I didn't mention. I, it wasn't in my notes. I wasn't intending to mention it last week, but I want to start with it this week. And uh, it won't be on the screens. You'll just have to trust me that this is what it says. Uh, Acts 27, 22, it says, but take courage. None of you will lose your lives, even though the ship will go down. Now, I don't know about you, but I find it hard sometimes to take courage, even if I have some certainty, much less, it's much more difficult to have courage whenever I have no certainty, no hope. And this verse, while, while I preached on it last week, and while there's, there's so much to it that we can, we can rest in this, this mentality that we can take courage because God is in control, here's the part of the verse that I don't like, and it's the ending. The ship will go down. I don't like that. Right? That makes me a little bit nervous. Take courage. Take, I am with you. No one's going to die, but the ship is going to go down. The, the, the term that I used last week was, you know, from like the meme of the crazy person driving the car. And, you know, you look at them and they're like, I'm never going to ride with you again. You drive like a maniac. And the driver looks over at you and says, but did you die? Right? Like the trip might have been insane. It might have been crazy. Your nerves might have been rocked. But did you die? I feel like that's God a lot of the times looking down at us. Like, we're frustrated, we're angry. Like, God, where are you? What are you doing? And God's response is, but 
Did you die? Like I brought you to where you were going. Here's, here's why I don't like this verse is because I put a lot of stock into the stuff that I build. I, I, I do. I value things that I do and the work that I put into it. I value that. I don't want to see things that I've done sink. Who does? Who likes that? Regardless of if God has spoken to me and saying, take courage. If my ship is going down, there's a part of me that struggles with that. There's a part of me that does not like that. I love the first part of the verse. Take courage. None of you will die this day. Take courage. None of you are going to be lost. But this boat, oh, it's done for. And the reason why I want to open up with that is because I feel like too often we look at the results of life and we look at the results of life as a blessing of God. And we say, well, my life is good. Therefore, I must be doing something right. God is blessing the things that I am doing. I've stayed true to his word. I pray every day. I read my Bible. I even downloaded the YouVersion app so that I have the Bible everywhere that I go. Because Lord knows you're going to take your phone everywhere, but you might leave that book on the nightstand. Right? So I have done all the things that I am supposed to do. And because I've done those things, God has blessed me and blessed my life. Well, while there is an element that is biblically accurate that says if you rest in what God has asked you to do, the things that God has asked you to do, you will reap what you have sown. You will reap goodness. If you sow good things, you will reap a good life. There are there's elements of that all throughout Scripture. But then there's verses like this one that say sometimes God will do things in you and around you where the only thing that you are left with is the breath that he gives you. And my question this morning is who is more blessed? The one who still has stuff or the one who still has breath? I would challenge you this morning to start with this. That the breath in your lungs is the greatest blessing of this life. Because it is a reminder. It is a reminder of the authentic and honest provision of your creator. You did nothing to gain the breath that you breathe. Nothing. You didn't create the air that is around you. Now you can make an argument, well, yes, Stephen, I drew it in. Sure you did. But how many of you woke up this morning and your first conscious thought was to breathe? None of you, right? No one wakes up thinking, oh, I, I got to take my breath. Whenever I was laying in bed two weeks ago, two and a half weeks ago, Ariel would come in uh, every once in a while and be like, are you breathing? Yes, babe, I'm here. No, no, that's not what I'm, are you, are you taking deep breaths? Are you exercising your lungs? She was on me the whole time. She was like, you got a sermon to preach this Sunday. You better get it together. That's whenever I had to think about it. The hard work, the labored breathing. That's when I had to think about it. But the everyday, run-of-the-mill, normal, no thought, no work. But it gives life. It's sustaining. 
everything else around me may go down, but I can still breathe. This morning, as we look to Acts 28, this is the moment where Paul takes his breath. This is the moment where everything that Paul has done comes to this place. We're finally going to arrive to Rome. It's been a long journey. It's been a chaotic one. It's been one that's been filled with ups and downs, uncertainty and, and hopeful situations. It's been a moment in which God's fingerprints have been all over it, that Paul is actively pursuing the mission and the vision that God has put on his life. Some people have honored him and praised him for the work that he has done. Other peoples have rejected him and turned away from him for the work that he has done. But he has always remained true to the calling on his life that was put there by God. Paul has always been been able to breathe. And because Paul has been able to breathe, he has been able to do. It's hard to do things whenever you can't breathe. It's hard to do things in life whenever you are dead. But whenever you live, you could accomplish a lot. So Paul has just come out of this, uh, out of this shipwreck with the reminder from the Spirit of God himself, take courage, no one's going to die. You're not going to die. The ship might go down. You're, you're, you might lose your job. You might lose your home. You might lose your car. You might not be able to wear a name brand clothes. Your bank account might not have six zeros in it. Everything around you that you built, everything around you that you thought was great, everything around you that you have established for yourself may be no more, but you will breathe at the end of this thing. And because you will breathe, you can use that breath to praise the God that brought you as far as you've come. And so here we are. We're shipwrecked. Not where we want to be. Paul's arrived on this island. Acts 28, verse 1. Once we were safe on shore, we learned that we were on the island of Malta. Remember, Luke is writing the book of Acts. He is with Paul at the time. So we includes he and Paul and the other 274 prisoners that were on the boat with him. The people of the island were very kind to us. It was cold and rainy, but they built a fire on the shore to welcome us. As Paul gathered an armful of sticks and was laying them by the fire, a poisonous snake driven out by the heat bit him on his hand. The people of the island saw it hanging from his hand and said to each other, a murderer, no doubt, though he escaped the sea, justice will not, will not permit him to live. But Paul shook off the snake into the fire and was unharmed. The people waited for him to swell up or suddenly drop dead. But when they had waited for a long time and saw that he wasn't harmed, they changed their minds and decided that he was a god. Near the shore where he landed was an estate belonging to Publicis, the chief official on the island. He welcomed us and treated us kindly for three days. As it happened, Publius's father was ill with fever and dysentery. Paul went in and prayed for him, laying his hands on him, and he healed him. Then all the other sick people on the island came and were healed. As a result, we were showered with honors. 
And when the time came to sell, people supplied us with everything that we would need for the trip. It's crazy sometimes as you read the Bible how the way of the story will jump from one place to another rather quickly. And obviously, Scripture is not a word-for-word recount that is moment by moment, but it's kind of big idea by big idea. So this is a story of of a group of men who are sailing from, from Jerusalem, Caesarea Philippi area, and they're on their way to Rome. And on that journey that should have taken about four weeks, four or five weeks, uh, give or take, this journey has taken just so much longer. By the end of it, it's going to be over, over four months that this journey will take. But, uh, but this, is, this is just a wild rodeo of a, of a trip. And it lands in a location that was not planned. Malta was not on the itinerary. Nobody was interested in stopping off at Malta, yet that's where they've come. Malta means refuge. Interesting, isn't it? That in the middle of the storm, the place that God sends this ship is the place whose name means refuge. Nothing in scripture is by coincidence. Nothing that God is up to is by happenstance. Everything in the plan was a part of the plan. God has overseen all of this and was controlling the winds to lead them to this place, Malta. Now, I know that none of us ever want to experience a shipwreck, right? My family loves to cruise. We are a cruising family. If you've ever been on a cruise, you know that it is great because you can eat 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and there is no limit. It is wonderful, just absolutely wonderful. Ice cream, all day long. Pizza, all day long. Do I eat it all day long? Why not? Yes, but I do not want to be on a cruise ship that goes through a shipwreck. I would like for my ship to dock, right, so that I can walk off of the boats at my scheduled destinations. However, if, if I were to ever be involved in a shipwreck, I would hope that God would have the winds blow me to Malta. Why? Because this is Malta. Put the picture up. Oh, man. I mean, I think I could do okay there. Look at how pretty it is. Look at that water. That's a bay, right? Like, that's a little inlet. If that were here in Texas, it would be brown and yuck. Yep, we'd still go swim in it because we're Texan. It ain't nothing going to keep us down. But just look at that. I mean, obviously it didn't look look like this when Paul was around, but it still was beautiful. I mean, no wonder it's called refuge. I could find a lot of refuge there. I'm sure of it. But it wasn't on the itinerary. In fact, Malta is so small, it barely shows up on the map in the back of your Bible. I'll show it to you. Go ahead and throw the map up, one. So here is Paul's trip that he's been on. Okay, we leave, we leave Caesarea Philippi down there on the, the bottom right, and we're going to make our way around. Um, 
kind of for the first half of the trip, things kind of kind of go uh, to plan. Fairhavens is where we landed last week. They landed at the harbor of Fairhavens uh, at the beginning of the storm. That's where Paul encouraged them to stay, right? He said, hey, let's, let's go ahead and stay here. Um, we, can, we can just stay here for, uh, for, the, for the winter. It'll be good. But it was an open harbor, and the ship's captains, they, they didn't like that. They, they didn't want to stay in an open harbor. So they wanted to go to Phoenix. Now, I want you to look on the map. Uh, Fairhaven's the Phoenix. Not that far, right? Some estimates say that it would have taken about uh, three to five days to get from Fairhavens to the harbor of Phoenix. Now, they, they wanted to get to Phoenix because it was a closed harbor, much better uh, for winter time. They could have put the boat up. All would have, been, all would have gone well. But in the time of, of Fairhavens of Phoenix, that's where the big storm shows up. It's where the 14-day storm comes into play. And so while your, your Bible map makes it this nice little line, from, from Fairhavens to Malta, it probably didn't look anything like that. Because as the storm was blowing, so was the ship. In fact, Scripture tells us, if you remember, that they basically just set the sail and then let go of the rudder. Wherever the winds blow us, that's where we're going to go. So it wasn't this little straight line. It looked more like a two-year-old that you've instructed to color in the lines. You know, it's just all over the place. Some gets on the table because they can't even keep it on the paper. That's more what the trip would have looked like. And somewhere around Malta, that little dot way over there on the far left-hand side of the screen, which like that dot on the screen is about as big as the actual island is in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, that dot is where God lands Paul. Not on the agenda. Yet that's where we are. How many of you have ever been to Malta? Anybody? Barney. One person's been to Malta. Barney's been the only one that's been to the physical Malta. But I'll tell you this morning that all of us have been to the spiritual one. Because Malta is that place of uncertainty. It's that place where you didn't intend to get to, yet there you are. Some of you aren't even sure how you arrived to it. Some of you aren't even sure how you got to Malta. But all you know is that you're there. And while the picture of Malta was beautiful, the reality of the Malta that Paul was in was not so pretty as what we just saw. In our translations of the Bible, they actually give the Maltese people a little bit of grace. Whenever Luke is writing this in Greek, the word that he is, that he is using is more the word barbaric. These are people who are not civilized, at least not to the degree that Paul and Luke would expect them to be. These are true islander people. They don't speak the language of Luke and Paul. They don't act like Luke and Paul. They are barbarians, yet... They are hospitable. And Paul accepts their hospitality. Can I tell you one thing that frustrates me about Christians? I mean, there's a lot of things that frustrate me about Christians. I am, I'm, I am a Christian. I frustrate myself sometimes. Okay, we're all in good company. But one thing that frustrates me about Christians is we have a hard time accepting hospitality from people who are not the same as us. We do. We have a hard time 
accepting hospitality from people that are not the same as us. I, I recognize this in my own life. Uh, whenever I was in college, uh, my wife and I had the opportunity to study abroad in Oxford, England. And uh, while we were there, um, I went to Abilene Christian University, and they had a small campus in Oxford. And what they would do is they would send professors from ACU in Abilene with you to Oxford, and they would be your instructors in the time that you were there. The semester that Ariel and I went, um, one of our professors was a, uh, a man named Dan McVeigh. And Dan had spent about 18 years prior to this working in uh, northern Africa with, with Muslim groups. Um, and, and he had been, he and his wife had been there for, for 18 years working with these, with these Muslim people, speaking all different types of dialect. Uh, so, so while the faith, the Muslim faith was the same, the way that they lived was very different depending on what region you were in. It was just, uh, it, it was just a, a season of, of growth and learning as they worked to bring Christianity to these groups of people in North Africa. Well, we had the privilege of going to Oxford with the McVeigh family. And it, what was crazy was Dan had a whole bunch of relationships with various uh, Muslim leaders in Oxford that he had met through his years of missionary experience in Africa. And so whenever we got to England, uh, some of the courses that were offered were Islamic study courses through ACU. Basically, we would learn the religion of Islam so that we would know what they're talking about, how they're talking about it, and then we as Christians could find the ways to bring Jesus into the conversation. I can make an incredible argument, if you ever want to have it, that Muslims are the easiest group of people to convert to Christianity because they're this close. The only piece that they're missing is Jesus. That's it. If you look at their texts, minus the Quran, if you look at all their other religious texts, they read the same religious text that you and I read. They read the Torah. They believe that it is sent from God. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all religious texts in Islam. All of them. The difference is, is that they believe that Jesus is one of the great prophets that God sent, not the Messiah. But they're this close. Anyways, side story. Time Sermon for another day. But while we were in England, we would go out and we would go to, uh, to these various uh, like, like religious festivals that we were invited to by Dan. And I'm not going to lie, it, there were some things that were difficult, like the food. It started as strange. Dates. Had never eaten a date before. Still not my favorite food, but they're not bad. But in Oxford, I sure ate a lot of them. Why? Because they were offered. We found ourselves in an area of town called Crowley Street. It was basically a, a, a market street of all things Middle Eastern. Restaurants and markets, clothing, you name it, it could be found on Crowley Street. We were there during the month of Ramadan. And every single night, do you know where we went to eat? Crowley Street. Why? Because during the month of Ramadan, Muslims will fast all day long until the, end, until the end of the day when the sun goes down. They break the fast, and they break the fast well. Food is everywhere. The first couple of days I would go, and I would eat, but I wouldn't talk because I didn't feel like I belonged. 
Yet that wasn't because of anything that anyone said or did. It was just my own feeling in the place that I was. I wasn't in my place. This wasn't a Christian gathering. This wasn't a good old-fashioned southern potluck. This was something very different, and I was uncomfortable. And I found myself disengaged from the audience that was around me, an audience, by the way, that was hungry for the word of God. Yet because I was uncomfortable in the moment, I was not going to be the one to bring it to them. And then about a week later, we were invited to a conversation with a religious leader that opened my eyes forever. And he said something in that meeting that changed everything about me. And he said, the reason why my people, speaking of Muslims, the Islamic faith, the reason my, my, why my people struggle to engage and interact with your people, Christians, is because you were unwilling to accept our hospitality. Unwilling. Unwilling to accept hospitality. Now this man opened my eyes, not just to the reality that I had been unwilling to accept the hospitality of the knights on Crowley Street, but opened my eyes to the reality that I have been unwilling to open myself up to the hospitality of anyone who didn't look like me, pray like me, read like me, or dress like me. I, in turn, had rejected their hospitality. And in doing so, whether or not they meant it this way, as a Christian, I must. In rejecting their hospitality, I was rejecting their blessing. How many of you are the type of people who whenever you go out to eat, you insist on paying every time, no matter what? Some of you are in here. I've had lunch with a few of you. I've invited you to lunch. I, at the end of the meal, ask for the check. And somehow, your credit card gets to it first. Can I tell you, for the record, nothing frustrates me more. Do you know why? Because of this moment. You maybe not even thinking about it, rejected my hospitality. And you robbed me of the blessing of being hospitable. I know we don't think in these terms very often. I know that sometimes we just, we don't think about how the way that we receive impacts other people, but it does. And what I find fascinating is that Paul has just come out of this terrible, no good situation. Paul should show up on the island of Malta being exhausted, looking for the closest local church so that he can go and be taken care of, to have his wounds mended by his own people. But what's great to know is that God brought him to a place where those people simply did not even exist. 
There were no Christians on the island of Malta, yet that is where refuge was found. If we are going to be a people who keep looking for refuge with people who look like us, act like us, and talk like us, then we are going to miss some of the greatest blessing opportunities that are found in this life. Because here's what I know about other Christians. They don't need me to bring them to Jesus. They don't. They've already arrived. They already know the Lord and Savior. Now maybe they need a maybe they need a wake up call. Maybe they need a you know some deep Southern Baptist preacher to show up and give them a little hellfire and brimstone and shake them up a little bit. But y'all know me, and that ain't me. What I'm all about is truth in love, rooted in the grace of Jesus Christ. And that message preaches, oh, y'all, it preaches good. And I showed up on Crowley Street one night and decided, you know what? I'm just going to open myself up. Just one time I'm going to open myself up to the true hospitality that is offered to me every time I've come down here. And so I did. I was invited to sit on this rug in the middle of a street. They would shut down the whole road. It was crazy. Sit on this rug in the middle of the street. In the middle of the rug was some, some little, I, I call it pita bread. They had a whole other name for it. But some, some pita bread triangles, some hummus. Oh, y'all, the hummus is so good. I love hummus now. Some hummus, some dates. It was all there. You sit down, you start to eat. I ate way too much with the appetizers because I didn't know real food was coming. And here comes in this roasted lamb. Sticky rice and curry. Oh, man. All so good. Some of y'all are going, and done. It's lunchtime. And sitting on that rug in the middle of Crowley Street, I spoke to this man. This man who had paid for everything that I was eating. It was served to me by his wife and by his daughter. And me and my friends sat on this rug with three other men, and they asked us, so what are y'all doing here? Well, we're going to school here. Oh, what school are you with? Well, we're with Abilene Christian University. Oh, you're Christians. Yes, sir, we are. Oh, man, I love Jesus. I'm sorry, what'd you say? Huh? Oh, okay. One more time. He said, yeah, well, I love Jesus. He did some really cool things. I've read about him. You, you know, this is what was funny to me. Is all of a sudden he starts, he starts telling me stuff about my own faith. He's telling me things about Jesus that I didn't even know about my Jesus. Jesus is my savior to him. He's just another dude he can read about. Yet he knew more stuff about my risen Lord than I knew about my risen Lord. And in that conversation, he's telling me this stuff, and I realized something. Wait a minute. I was brought here for a reason. Don't you know that when you accept hospitality from people, it's normally for a reason? My children have never been hospitable to me if they didn't have a reason. Right? If you're raising kids, you know what I mean. If you walk into their bedroom and the bed is made, you better be ready for an ask. You better be ready to pull out the credit card because a request is coming. Campbell, why is your bed made? Because, Daddy, I love you. Such a good daddy. 
hugs around the legs. You know, those are the best ones. I mean, you know, she, she just puts on the sweetness. And then, can we go get a snow cone? Now, my daughter knows my weakness because I'm always down for a good snow cone. And you're like, well, I mean, you made your bed. Look how nice your room is. You've been so sweet to me. Sure, babe, we'll go get a snow cone, right? There's always a catch. But sometimes hospitality presents itself to open you up to opportunity. And sitting on Crowley Street, I had that opportunity to speak to a man about a Jesus that he already loved. To speak to a man about a Jesus that he already knew about. But what he needed was a testimony as to what that Jesus could do for him. And that wasn't going to be given to him any other way except through a relationship. And through the acceptance of hospitality from someone who didn't look like me, act like me, talk like me, believe like me, go to a church like me, through accepting of that hospitable moment, I had the opportunity to speak life into this man. Paul shows up on the island of Malta and is greeted by barbarians. He could have rejected their hospitality. He could have turned away. He could have said, no, we got it. We'll, we'll take care of ourselves. We'll just build a fire out of our broken down ship. We'll just, we'll take care of ourselves. Y'all go back to your own way. Don't mind us. We're only going to be here for a few days, and then we'll be back on the road or on the ocean, right? Don't, just don't worry about us. But instead, he accepts the hospitality, and he's warmed up around a fire. But one thing about Paul is Paul doesn't stay stagnant for long. Paul is the definition of servant leader. So he sees that there's opportunities to do things. So Paul gets up and he goes out and collects sticks for the fire. And while he's collecting sticks for the fire, he brings them over to the fire and sets them down. And the heat of the fire drives out a snake that bites him on the hand. Don't you know that just when you think things are going right, something else is always going to go wrong. I mean, the shipwreck was bad enough, being washed up on the shores of some random island, not on the itinerary, bad enough. And then all of a sudden, things start looking okay. We got a group of people who are taking care of us. Life is going to get better. And then a snake bites. Now, this snake doesn't just bite him and move on. No, no, no. This snake bites him and hangs on. Because the brokenness of this world and the trials that come with it have a tendency to linger for a while. I haven't dealt with a whole lot of troubles that just happen to me and then I'm done with them. Typically, the struggles in my life have happened to me and then they stay with me for a while. That's the snake. Paul picks his hand up. And in front of this audience... Everyone sees this snake hanging from his hand. And these people are quick, man. They look at that moment and they say, uh-uh, this guy's no good. He's a murderer. He might have escaped the justice of the sea, but he will not escape the justice of this snake. He is a dead man. But Paul does something. Y'all all thought that Taylor Swift was creative. 
she ain't. She just reads the Bible sometimes. And she wrote a song, I think around 2013 or 14, called Shake It Off. Because that's what Paul did with this snake. Shake it off, shake it off. That will forever live on the internet now. But he shakes the snake off. And then, watch this. And then the people who were just calling him a murderer, who just said justice will be served, that was their God, God of justice. Those very same people watched this happen. And whenever Paul didn't die, whenever his hand didn't swell up, when nothing happened to them, all of a sudden they start bowing down before him because they think he's a God. People are flaky. Notice, the same people who were accusing him are the same people who are honoring him. What happened? Paul showed, showed them who he was. I'm not just another guy. I'm here. And since I'm here, I got something to tell you. And he tells them, I am no God, but I know one, the one. And he brought me to this island. And while I can't stay here long because I got to get to Rome, while I'm here, let me do something. And so he goes, he's invited, right? He's invited to the chief priest, the, the, the tribal chief's house. And he goes in, and this guy named Publius, and he's there. And he goes into this man's house. He accepts the hospitality, goes into this man's house, sits down for dinner. And then he finds out that there's a man who is sick, who has been sick for a while that's in the house. And so Paul over to the man and with the hand that had just been bitten by a snake, places his hands on this man and brings healing over his body. The events that everybody thought were going to kill him have now empowered him to do incredibly and immeasurably more than he could have ever asked or imagined on this island of Malta. It's amazing how the sovereignty of God works out. Because not just was one man healed, one man would have been great, but word gets around this little island of Malta. And it gets around apparently pretty quick. And so all the sick people start showing up. And you know what happens? Paul heals all of them. They end up staying on this island for about three months. In that time, there's a brand new church that's built. People who were once lost, but have now physically and spiritually been found. And the island of Malta is no longer described as a barbaric place. The picture I showed you is a picture of a church on the island of Malta. Why is there a church there? Because God had a shipwreck on Paul that led him to an island where he could get bit by a snake so that people could see him and see that he didn't die from the snake bite so that they would invite him in. How are you going to change people's lives if you're never invited? How are you going to change the world if you never accept an invitation to go and have a lunch that you really know you don't want to actually go and have because you have enough problems you don't need to go deal with somebody else's? How are you going to change lives if you don't accept the invitation to get in the nitty-gritty and the dirty of life? If you're too busy trying to stay polished and stay clean and stay put together, you're going to miss the opportunities of salvation that God is presenting to you because you are too good to pick up sticks. That's what led Paul to where he was. 
let me be a servant leader and go gather some more firewood, which led to a snake bite, which led to a miracle in himself, which led to an invitation, which led to a miracle from himself, which led to the reality that Paul was there to represent something that was far bigger and far greater than anyone on that island have ever experienced before. And it all happened because God was in control of the winds that led to a shipwreck. You may look at your life and think that it is crumbling. You may look at your life and think that nothing is going right. You may look at your life and see destruction everywhere. Or you could open your eyes to the reality that God is in control and you can look for the opportunity that he has put before you. And it might not look like you thought it would. But here's what I know about Paul. Is Paul knew that he had to get to Rome. And to Rome he would go. So Paul wasn't worried about a shipwreck. He knew he would survive it. Paul wasn't worried about a snake bite. He knew he would survive it. But a lot of us, a lot of us will go through something and we'll arrive to a place that's better. We'll go through a shipwreck and we'll arrive on Malta. We'll deal with the problems of Malta and we'll go, you know what? I just want to stay here. I know it's not where I'm supposed to be, but I'll stay here. This is nice. This is comfortable. I've made some friends now. I know what snakes are poisonous. I got that going for me. Paul could have stayed. Could have lived a nice life. A life that was beautiful. You saw that island. He could have had some prime real estate in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. He could have enjoyed the good life. He had a group of people who adored him, who honored him, who saw him as somebody. Paul could have stayed in Malta. And all of his problems would have disappeared, right? He could have had his church. He could have been taken care of, well-fed. He could have had worship services. The people who were sick could have come to him for healing. Life could have been great on Malta. But it wasn't where it was supposed to be. Verse 17. Three days after Paul's arrival, or I'm sorry, we're gonna, I'm going to skip a section of Scripture. It's basically the journey from Malta to Rome. Uh, they get a ship from Malta. It's an Alexandrian ship, so it's built really well. The people of Malta loaded up with goods and supplies for the journey, and they get to Rome. That's where we are, verse 17. Three days after Paul's arrival to Rome, he called together the local, local Jewish leaders, and he said to them, Brothers, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Roman government. Even though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our ancestors. The Romans tried me and wanted to release me because they found no cause for my death sentence. But when the Jewish leaders protested the decision, I felt it necessary to appeal to Caesar. Even though I had no desire to press charges against my own people. I asked you to come here today so we could get acquainted. And so I could explain to you that I am bound with this chain because I believe that, uh, that the hope of Israel, the Messiah, has already come. And they replied, we have had no letters from Judea or reports against you from anyone who has come here. But we want to hear what you believe. For the only thing we know about this movement is that it, it is denounced everywhere. So at a time was, so a time was set. And on that day, a large number of people came to Paul's lodging. He explained and testified about the kingdom of God and tried to persuade them about Jesus from the scriptures. And using the law of Moses and, and the books of the prophets, he spoke to them from morning until evening. 
Some were persuaded by the things he said, but others did not believe. And after they had argued back and forth among themselves, they left with this final word from Paul. The Holy Spirit was right when he said to your ancestors through Isaiah the prophet, go and say to these people, when you hear what I say, you will not understand. When you see what I do, you will not comprehend. For the hearts of these people are hardened, and their ears cannot hear, and they have closed their eyes, so their eyes cannot see. And their ears cannot hear, and their hearts cannot understand, and they cannot turn to me, and let me heal them. So, I want you to know that this salvation from God has also been offered to the Gentiles, and they will accept it. For the next two years, Paul lived in Rome at his own expense. He welcomed all who visited him, boldly proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. And no one tried to stop him. Malta sounded pretty good. And if we're honest, as we read the end of Acts, it sounds better than than Rome. Because Paul gets to Rome. And he calls together this group of people who were this close to being believers, who believed that the Messiah was to come, that God was in control. They believed everything that Paul was preaching except for this piece, that Jesus was the Messiah. And Paul shows up to town and he gives them the sermon. He tells them about the hope that he has in Jesus. He testifies before them. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was a man who killed Christians, but now I am a man who is converting them. That is now who I have become. I, was the, I am the chief of sinners, yet God uses me for his glory. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That is who I am. And these Jewish people go, That's all right. They can't see it. They can't hear it. And they can't change. So Paul has a decision to make. Where does he go now? Malta sounds pretty good, right? But he stays. He stays in Rome for the next two years. While he's there, he'll write a few more letters of which we, as New Testament Christians today, can read in our New Testament book. For two years, he will challenge people. He'll challenge the Jewish nation. He'll challenge the Gentile people. And for two years, he will establish the church in Rome. He will establish the church that, in my opinion, at least from his letter's account, will become the most grace-centric church in the New Testament. Rome will be the church that Paul will point to and challenge time after time again to rest in the grace and the goodness of God. Quit trying to achieve things for the kingdom and just become the kingdom. Accept invitations to change lives. What I think is great is how the book of Acts ends. It doesn't end with fanfare. It doesn't end with the parade. It doesn't end with every knee on the face of the planet bowing before the one true God. It doesn't end with Paul being, being announced as, as you know, the, the greatest person to ever walk on the face of the planet. As much as goodness as he has done, as much as been established for the church, as much as the Gentile people have been changed, the way that the book of Acts ends is with this phrase. 
No one stood against them. I can't help but go back to the meme. But did you die? Through shipwreck, hope was lost. Remember it says that the the sun, the moon, and the stars were blotted out in the skies and all hope was lost. In two chapters time, we went from all hope being lost to a man on crusade that no one was willing to stand against. Why? Because Paul himself will pen these words. If Christ is for you, who can stand against you? The reality of the book of Acts that I want you to leave with today and forever is that the Spirit of God is very real. And that the Spirit of God is empowering. It is a force to be reckoned with. It is a force that has never been defeated. Death could not hold it down. And the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the grave is the same power that now lives in you. The question and the challenge before you today is what are you going to do with it? Because Paul took his own revival and paved a way for you and I to know the name of Jesus. And it starts whenever he accepts invitations. That's who Paul was. Every church he planted, every place he went, was because he was invited. He was invited into homes. He was invited into lives. He was invited on the islands. He was invited into courtrooms. Everywhere that Paul went, he accepted the invitation with the motivation to see Jesus reign as Lord and Savior. It is who we are. It is what we should be about. In the midst of trial, uncertainty, and storms, I want you to rest in this confidence that God is with you, that God is in control, and that what he has called you to, you will see come to pass because he is the God of the promise. So take courage because not one of you will perish. Though the ship may go down, you will arrive to where God has called you to be. Let me pray over us. God, we thank you for this moment. We thank you for the story of Paul, for the movement that he created in your church. God, we look to the life of Peter and see the zeal that he had for you and your kingdom. But God, we know that the motivation behind all of it, the power and the force that moved both of these men to do the things that they accomplished was the power of the Spirit of God. And the same power that lived in them lives in us. So God, I pray that you would open up our eyes to see the opportunities before us. That you would give us the courage to stand even when everything around us seems like it's crumbling. That God, we would lean in to your grace and mercies that are new every single morning. That God, we, with you, would see the world change and the kingdom come. God, that is our prayer today and for always. In Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. 
We would love for you to connect with us weekly, so please be sure to subscribe to this channel. We would also ask that if you have been encouraged by this ministry, would you consider partnering with us financially? Your support helps us continue our mission of helping people move from where they are to where God is calling them to be. You can find all the ways to give at graceodessa.com give. Thank you.